Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the turn of the weather in the last few months and the rain that you've been bringing and the way it lifts our spirits to see things green and growing again and for the cooler weather with it. Father, you say in your word that you bring the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous, that your grace, Father, does not know those boundaries of merely to your children, but you are showing grace to the whole world all the time. We, as those who have believed, have received the special grace that comes by faith in Christ. But yet you are still at work all around us. The world is at, at all times, Father, under your control and receiving your mercy in many ways, big and small. Most of all, Father, by the way that you have, in your forbearing, put off the time of judgment. So that even now, as a world walks in sin, you wait and give greater opportunity. And we pray, Father, that we might be a useful uh, family of servants who can take use of this time and put it to your glory by bringing the news of the gospel, by living our lives in a way that testifies to our faith, by showing the selfless love that Christ showed us to others around us, to be ever mindful, Father, that the days are short, just to think in those ways when the world itself is oblivious to the truth. Help us, Father, to count each day for the way we can serve you. And before this, in the text this morning, Father, is the story of Isaac and Rebekah, Abraham and the servant, a story, Father, that reminds us of your work in this world. I ask that the pictures and the, the storyline would be a reminder to us, Father, of how you are at work and how we are called to join. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 24, what a really special chapter of Scripture, chapter 24 of Genesis. The story alone is interesting, the, the encounter with the servant and Rebecca at the well, which we're studying right now. But today we get a chance to really delve into a beautiful secondary story or a picture that's just below the surface of the main story. The story is of Abraham looking for a wife for his son. Abraham taking seriously his responsibility to find the right wife for his son. A lot rides on this union, by the way, between Isaac and his prospective wife. This is the wife who, with Isaac, will continue the seed line of the promise God gave through Abraham. Eventually, the Messiah comes from this marriage down the line, of course. So this woman, whoever she'll be, has to be acceptable to God. It's not enough for Abraham to simply find a woman that looks good to him. This needs to be the woman God has for his son. And equally important, the way he finds this woman is a testimony of sorts. It tells the world what Abraham thinks of who God is and what his promises mean. That's why, for example, Abraham has enlisted a servant like we looked at last week. He himself, Abraham, refuses to leave this land that God has given him because he's more concerned with how that appears than he is in being personally involved in finding the wife. He's willing to work through his servant to find the wife rather than leave the land. And he also doesn't want Isaac to run off on his own and look for his wife because he's afraid that if Isaac left the land, went back to his relatives, found a woman there, he might be tempted to just stay there, just to live out the rest of his life where his family lives. So the end result is the father, Abraham, is assigning to the servant in his household the responsibility of arranging a marriage on behalf of his son, an arranged marriage in which the husband and the wife don't meet until after the marriage has already been formed. It reminds me of the story of a young boy who was reading National Geographic and he was reading about Countries in the East where this is a practice, even today, where they will have arranged marriages between families. And the boy is amazed by this prospect. He runs to his dad and he says, Dad, did you know that in some countries the man 
doesn't even know his wife until after they're married. And the father sighs and says, son, it's that way in every country. And the servant is moving right along. And the servant of Abraham has traveled, as we studied last week. He's moved out into the home country. He's waiting now by this well in the city where Nahor lives, though at this moment, his understanding of who he's looking for is absent. He doesn't know. He just knows he's in geographically the right place. Sitting at this well, waiting to find the right woman, according to God's desires, he does the only thing he can do under the circumstances. He appeals to God for direction. So often in our way of thinking, we know that that is an approach or an option. But what we often do is work our own plan until it gets nowhere. And then we say, well, last resort, I might as well ask God for help. Well, the servant in this case has no other resort. He only has the option of asking God for help because he has nowhere to start. He doesn't even know what he's looking for. And he sets up this test we studied last week in which he contrived a completely improbable situation, asking God that a woman would be willing to not only give him a drink of water in response to his request, but would then go the next step on her own without even a suggestion from him to water all his camels as well. A test that clearly would have to be a sign from God were it to happen. And so in verse 12, where we pick up, and I'm backing up just a couple of verses so that we maintain our context, we'll pick up again where at the moment where he's at the well proposing this test, and then we'll go forward and see what takes place. Genesis 24, verse 12. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by this spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jars so that I may drink and who answers drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master before he had finished speaking. Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw. And she drew for all his camels. The test that the servant proposed here was guaranteed to be something that could present no mistake for him in discerning God's will. He said to God, show me a woman who's willing not only to agree to my request for for water from her jar, remembering that he's a stranger to any woman he would meet in this place, but make her such that she would go the next step and say, I'll water your ten thirsty camels at the same time. Now, that meant she would spend considerable time and effort in the process, because as we said last week, that's about 250 gallons of water out of these jars that might have held three to five gallons at most. And you notice it talks about her having to bring her jar down. They would have carried this up on her shoulder because of the weight of it all. So there's effort even required in being willing to stop as she walks, lower it down, give him a drink. Just that was an imposition 
Just that was enough that for many women, especially with a strange man, the response would have been, no, go draw your own water and don't talk to me. That's it's inappropriate. But she doesn't have any objection. Calling him Lord, she willingly gives him water. And then as the test required, she voluntarily decided to take on this huge task. I, mean, I guess you could say if you're finding a woman who's willing to go water ten thirsty camels, you ought to marry her. That's a good woman right there. Now, I want you to notice the grace of God at work, though, in this. Even before the servant stops speaking, we're told, Rebecca is walking down to the well with her jar. Even before he's done putting this test forward, there she is. Isn't God's faithfulness and his, and his love for his children wonderful here? Isn't this an amazing way of, of turn of events here? The servant himself is still in the midst of making this appeal to God. Was he walking it through in his mind, trying to make sure that God was listening and that he was using the right words? that he was in the right posture, that his heart was in the right place. Maybe he had closed his eyes extra tight to be sure that it was earnest. You you know the feeling I'm talking about? That, That feeling we all share when we want God to respect and respond to our deepest needs, our strongest desires, our most earnest prayers. And we want God to see that earnestness. And so we think ourselves through the process. Am I really doing this the right way? Have I given all that I can give to this prayer request? Perhaps he was suppressing doubts in the back of his mind about whether God would honor his request or whether God was even listening in the moment. And as he's going through this process in his mind, Rebecca has been walking toward the well, even as he's speaking. When did she start walking? I wonder, you know, she doesn't live next to the well. No one does. She may have been walking for an hour before he started asking for the thing he's asking for. She's already coming down to the well. And even if we go further back in time than that, she had to be destined by God to be born on a certain day in a certain place so that she would arrive here on this certain day at this certain time. Moreover, she is one of Abraham's family. She's not just one of them. She is the one that Abraham desired. Remember back in chapter 22 when he heard that his brother Nahor had had children and that one of them had had a daughter named Rebekah? And that's what prompted him to send the servant to the home of Nahor looking for just this woman. So God has been at work preparing for this moment. And here's the servant coming into this moment as God has designed it. And he's proposing a test, which is the right thing to do. And his heart is hoping God will hear it, which is the natural thing to think. But the grace of God goes before us, even in our requests, even in our needs. So while we work hard to find the right words and the right posture, which is fine, those are not inappropriate, of course. Just remember that even as we make our requests, God is already at work. And we're not convincing him. We're not persuading him. We're appealing to him. And just as Jesus taught in the Gospels, the Father knows what we need even before we ask it. But that does not eliminate the need to ask it. That's the mystery of God working through the sovereignty of his will, and yet with the will of man still involved in this equation. That it is not the case that because God has the beginning plan from the end and that we are subject to his will, that we nevertheless can sit back and do nothing and ask nothing and rest in just our own situation. That's not an acceptable outcome, according to Scripture. We get on our knees. And we make the appeals, but then we get off our knees with confidence that God is already at work. 
What a freeing thing, by the way, to remember this story the next time you're in a moment in which you make these appeals to God. Remember as you finish in the appeal and you get up, think about this moment. Look up and ask yourself, is Rebecca already walking toward me, so to speak? Is the answer already happening in my world around me? And I just may not see it yet, but I know he's heard me and I know he's already at work. So as the servant looks up, he sees this woman. Now, he doesn't know it's Rebecca. We do. He just knows that she's attractive. She's beautiful, we're told. She's carrying a jar, which means she's obviously coming to the well for water. And and he sees his first opportunity to apply the test. Now, he knows nothing more than what he could have known at that moment, only what he saw. So as he sees her go to the well... She gets the water, she fills her cistern up, her jar, and she begins to walk back to wherever she came from. He runs to her, we're told here, he runs to put this test into action. And he asks her, can I have a drink from your jar, just as he had planned? Rebecca then proceeds to grant his request, as we said, and then offers to water all the camels. And then the text describes how she does this. And it's very pointed. There are 11 verbs in Hebrew assigned to what she does. Rapid haste in action. It's all directed toward explaining how quickly she does this. She moves quickly. She is very urgent about it all. It's not just that she wants to do this thing. She eagerly wants to do it. I see God's hand in that as well. Not only did God grant the servant's request in seeing this test confirm the identity of the woman, but just in case the servant wasn't clear that this was the one, God assigns her the heart to do it eagerly so that she's going overboard. It's that servant heart that wants to do everything 110%. There's no mistaking this is the woman. It reminds me of what Paul said in describing the God we serve in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the God we serve. You ask for the impossible test, he can answer that. And he can go a step further and do it with a woman who runs to make ten thirsty camels happy. That's an amazing response on God's part. So what do you think the servant was expecting? I think this is an interesting question because it gives us insight into how we sometimes set up our own expectations for God. In response to our request, how do you think the servant expected this encounter to proceed? I'm guessing that he expected to see this young woman walk away without saying a word and without even offering him a drink. Because that would have been expected. Maybe along the course of this day, as he encountered woman after woman after woman, a few of them might be willing to do the first step and actually give him a drink of water. In fact, he probably expected to get his fill of water by the time the day was out, just trying to find a woman who was willing to pass the test, right? That would have been the expectation. I've asked God. I've set the test out. I trust he can fulfill it, but I certainly don't expect him to do it on the first woman that comes along, do you? Now, if you're like me, that's how you think. That's how I would think. My thinking is, well, I trust him to answer it, but what are the odds he's going to do it first shot out of the gate? That doesn't make any sense. That's asking for too much. And what does he do here? Before he even stops speaking, the first woman he asks, it's the one who's going to pass this test. He was not expecting this woman to be the one who would actually pass the test. And how do I know that? Well, look at verse 21. Look at his response. Meanwhile, the man, that is the servant, of course, was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. 
Now, the English is way too subtle. The Hebrew is a little more telling. The word for gaze there in Hebrew is the only time that word appears in the entire Old Testament. It literally means mesmerized. I can imagine him with his mouth open, just sort of looking at this, because not only is it a wonder to see someone do this, I mean, what she's willing to do here is, in fact, unbelievable. But more than that, it's the first one. And so his thinking is, could it be this easy? Is it really the case that this first one is going to be the one that God has sent me here for, that he's making my journey a success at this point? So he's standing there wondering, I don't know how many camels you have to water before you get the point, but he, he waited through the whole ten of them. Did you notice? He waited till they had all finished drinking. I think it's safe to say he was surprised. And it's obvious that God didn't want him to miss the sign. Now, if we dig a little deeper, we're finding a beautiful picture here developing. So I think it's time we begin to uncover it. Some now and then more as we move further into the story. Remember back in chapter 22 when we studied Abraham and Isaac going up to the mountain to be sacrificed by by Abraham in that moment. Isaac became a picture of Christ through the course of those events. The writer in Hebrews told us that that was the case, that by that encounter, God was establishing a picture for us. And a picture in Scripture is a way of saying one thing starts to stand for or foreshadow a later thing. But there's always an implicit relationship between them in Scripture. When something pictures something else, there's always a lesser to greater relationship in that picture. So God will give us a story, a true story. It's literal. It did, in fact, happen in real life. But in God's sovereign power to construct lives and events in history, he causes people's lives to play out in a way that serves as a play, literally, like we would see on a stage in a theater. A play in which the actors don't even know they're actors. The people themselves have no concept in their everyday life that what they're experiencing is actually being orchestrated by God and made to come out a certain way so that after it's all said and done, someone else can see it all and say to themselves, oh, I see a pattern in this. That pattern is a picture or a story in itself about a later set of events that God is planning to bring about. So in the way that Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain, presumably to sacrifice him, the father looking to sacrifice his own son, that happening on the very same mountain where Jesus himself was sacrificed, all of that is a picture of what the Father in heaven did to his son on the same mountain many, many years later. The later event is a much greater, more significant moment than the earlier one. So that's how we say the earlier one is a lesser to the later one, which is the greater. But we now can see the two clearly as having a relationship. What we're studying now in chapter 24 is one of the most complete, detailed, marvelous pictures in the entire Old Testament. And I am often struck by how few have actually taught it as a picture and see it as a picture. And they're missing out on one of the best aspects of the story of Isaac and Rebekah and Abraham. So now we have in this story, Abraham and Isaac, they are the same characters, of course. So let's apply the same picture, the same roles that we saw in chapter 22 and see how they start to play out here in chapter 24. For example, we have the father again, but now he's seeking a bride for his son. And working for the father in this effort is another character, the servant. So the servant is sent out seeking a bride on behalf of the son under the authority of the father. Now, as the servant 
comes upon the prospective bride, we're talking here about Rebecca, of course, as he comes to her in the first moment, it's not clear to the servant at this point whether this is in fact the woman who will marry Isaac. She's possibly a bride. Notice how the relationship develops. The servant brings an offer to the woman. Now, the offer is cloaked. In the case of Isaac and Rebecca and the servant in our story, the offer is not, would you like to marry Isaac? The offer is, can I have a drink of water? Now, the servant has constructed that offer in such a way that it will only receive a positive response if the father, in this case, the Lord, allows it. Do you remember that? The servant said in his prayer, Lord, whomever I ask, may I have a drink of water? If she says yes, and I'll water your camels also, I will know this is from you and you are showing loving kindness to Abraham. So here we have a servant who's dependent on the father in heaven to give him a positive result when he puts forth the question. Now, she could have responded in two ways. She could have been the one who responded negatively or she could respond positively as she did. And the servant has determined that he will know whether or not this is the appointed one by how they respond. If the Lord decides to make his journey successful, the response will come back positive. If the Lord has not determined that this woman would be the answer to his prayer, then the answer will come back negative and he'll move on. We'll come back to the picture here over time. I want to build it in stages. But going back to the main story, when we see the servant now receive the positive response and watch and gaze to find out what it means He finally gets the point. Look at what comes next. Verse 22. When the camel had finished drinking, the man, meaning again the servant, took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. The servant here produces the gold ring and the bracelets and gives them to Rebecca, puts them on Rebecca, because in that moment he just betrothed her. It's a wedding proposal, but more than just a proposal, he's moved past the point of proposal. He's basically engaged her to Isaac as a result. Effectively, this woman has just been married, but there is still a couple of details yet to work out. There's the matter of the price for the bride and the family back home, whoever her father is, would have to approve this arrangement. But the servant is acting in a way that is a bit presumptuous, but not when you consider his view of God in this process. If this was simply an earthly arrangement, he would not have gone this far this quickly. He would have wanted to go to the father first and then propose through the father that the betrothal happen. But look at how this servant is operating here. The woman did everything that he asked to see happen. So the servant knows this is the woman God has appointed. He doesn't even ask her name because her identity is irrelevant at this point. In fact, her identity is about to change anyway. She's about to become known as Isaac's wife. So whatever her current identity is, is meaningless. There's just the matter of negotiating the price for the brides, but he's already assuming God's got that worked out. So he's jumped a step here because, after all, if God's got me going on this path, why do I worry that there's going to be something to stop it? 
So he basically marries her to Isaac in the moment in the way that marriages were arranged in that day. Then he asks, whose family are you from? We need to go get this deal done. And then he hears that this woman is Rebecca, the granddaughter of Nahor. And she says, you're welcome in our house. That had to be news that just knocked him down like a ton of bricks. Wouldn't you agree? He doesn't care whether she's Nahor's granddaughter at this point because he's accepting God's will for whatever God wants, whoever she is. But when he hears this isn't just some girl, this is the exact person that he was sent by Abraham to go find. A person he'd never met, could never have identified if he had been asked, had no way to know where to find her. The first one he finds. Have you ever been in a situation where you can say I've had that same kind of moment? Where you see the handwriting of God on the circumstances of your life in a way that just knocks you over in the moment. It's that moment of instant recognition that though we were oblivious to what he was doing, he was always working around us anyway. I was thinking about as I wrote this sermon, I was thinking about different examples and I had so many. I just decided I could get lost in them if I even tried to give one. You just get used to it after a while, in a a sense, if you're open to it, if you see God's handwriting in your life. And you realize, God, why do I ever worry? Why do I even question that God is at work? When I see this happen, it just reminds me, he's always at work, far ahead of me. But when you have one of those aha moments, like you see happening here with this servant, do we remember to stop in our tracks and thank him and worship him over it? Because I love those moments. I love to celebrate them with people and talk about them. But I had to ask myself, do I let that moment stand for what it should stand for, which is an opportunity for me to acknowledge him in my life and thank him for his grace and his mercy. And I wish I could tell you I was as good at doing that as I am at enjoying the moments when they happen. I don't know what was happening with Rebecca in that moment, but he didn't care. He bows and worships God right there because that's the moment that struck him. If we aren't prone to taking those moments, my guess is we aren't going to do them nearly enough. Let's go back to our second story for a moment of the Father in heaven, of the Son Christ, and of this other character, the servant here. Well, Scripture tells us that when the Father in heaven desired to find a bride for his son, Christ, he likewise went into the world. But notice the son himself is at home with his father in the heavenly throne room, even as we sit here right now. The father has determined that his son is not permitted in this current time to travel to the home of the bride. He's been removed from the home of the bride and he is not permitted to come back here. He will remain in the place where his father dwells. Instead, the father has relied on his servant to go into the world and to seek out and find a bride for his son. Now, we know from Scripture in the New Testament that the bride of Christ is a term used to describe the church of believers living in the world today, all the church saints since the time of Christ's first coming. The father's servant is someone who travels to the world, bringing the offer of a marriage proposal to all who will listen and all who will accept. And the world is given the opportunity to respond to that invitation. And as the servant brings it, there is that opportunity to watch and see whether there will be a positive response. And when there is a favorable response, the servant is interpreting that response to be an indication that God the Father has appointed this one to be the bride. The difference, of course, between the story and the picture is that in the story there's one bride for Isaac, Rebecca for Isaac. But in the way the picture is developing, obviously the bride of Christ is made up of many who are in the church. 
So the proposal happens over and over again. And there is yet again with each one the opportunity for acceptance or rejection. But the servant's the same servant. The spirit of God is the one in the world serving in that way. And as he brings that message through the mouths of people like me and you or through other means, there is that moment of opportunity. If there is a positive response, the servant is going to be giving glory to the father for the father has made that possible in the heart of those who receive. To those of us who have said yes and have agreed with the invitation, what does the servant do? Well, in the case of our story, the servant immediately took out rings and and gold bracelets and put it on the bride and betrothed the bride immediately to her future husband. Likewise, as an individual comes to accept what they've heard through this spirit led messenger, that acceptance is immediately confirmed, Scripture tells us, by the bestowing of gifts from the servant to the prospective bride. Gifts that acknowledge that you are in a marriage now, that you have been betrothed and that you are bound to this one who you will soon meet. And those gifts are intended to set that person apart. One of the consequences of this encounter with Rebecca and the servant is that these rings, these bracelets, they are outward signs to the world she lives in that some lucky guy has caught her and she's no longer on the market, so to speak, as a prospective bride. She's been claimed. That's exactly the same purpose. One of the purposes in the way God equips us with gifts of the spirit. It's his way of first claiming us and then through these gifts, blessing us, but all for the same ultimate purpose to reflect the betrothal. Scripture assures us of these things. Paul says in Second Corinthians 121. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The word pledge in Greek actually is the word we would use today of down payment. Earnest money might be another good word. Think of it like how you buy a house today in most cases. If I wanted to buy your home, you expect me to put something up to prove my sincerity in the purchase process, to prove that I am going to commit to going through with this process and finish the purchase. So we expect earnest money. That's the sense of the word here in the Greek. God gave us a down payment of the spirit as proof to us that what he started, he's going to finish. But the process will go all as planned to the end. Paul says also in Ephesians 1.13, in him, so it begins with being in God, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We now become God's possession and what he began, he's going to redeem. Beautiful, isn't it? And Paul finishes with another statement in Romans 12:6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And these are essentially our bracelets, our rings that we show the world. I want you to notice in both the story and in the picture, the son's direct involvement, his physical presence is not a part of the process. Now, we know that the spirit, the son, the father, they are one. So in that sense, our Lord is involved by virtue of his spirit. But in terms of the personage of Christ, the physical person of Christ in the body, he's not present. He's like Isaac. He's back home with his dad, relying on the servant to find that bride. Now, interestingly here, the servant in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah, he's never named. Did you notice that? It's really unusual when you think about it. You have this really long story. 
really detailed. And the servant is the key player in the story for the most part. And yet his name is never given in the entire story, which is even more interesting when you consider we know his name. It's Eleazar. Remember? The servant that Abraham was concerned would inherit his family's property. He was the servant, the lead chief servant of Abraham's family. We have every reason to believe it's the same man. But for some reason, as we get to chapter 24, Moses refuses to name him at all, calling him the man and the servant. Why? Well, there's a great purpose in that. There's a reason why he's not named, even though we know who he is. Because he pictures the third person of the Trinity, because he pictures the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit is pictured by another individual in Scripture, that individual always goes without a name because it is a reflection of the nature of the Spirit himself. The Spirit is a nameless, faceless, unformed part of the Godhead. You'll never see him. He never takes any form. His purpose in ministry is to glorify the Son who then gives glory to the Father, never to glorify himself. He's the behind-the-scenes player, the invisible force. So when we want to picture him in Scripture, we try to evoke that thinking by giving the person who pictures him no identity, no description of what he looks like, not even a name, so that we'll be reminded this is somebody who acts outside of our witness. You'll find the same pattern, by the way, in another story in which the Spirit is pictured, the story of how Boaz finds his wife in the story of Ruth. Remember, the spirit here is the one who introduces the bride to her prospective husband. In the same way, there's a moment in which Boaz receives an introduction to his prospective wife to be Ruth. Now, we know Boaz is a picture of Christ in the story of Ruth. And Ruth is a picture of the same exact thing that Rebecca is a picture of. The bride of Christ, that is the church. Who introduces Boaz to his prospective wife? Boaz's nameless servant who never receives a name in the story of Ruth. Remember in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus describes the Spirit this way. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear a sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. As believers, we've never seen the face of Christ, have we? And I'm not counting the blue-eyed, blonde-haired paintings that picture Jesus that really probably looks nothing like what he actually looked like. We've never seen him. We have yet to encounter him. One day we will. But we know we are wedded to him. We are wedded to him as our future husband. And by grace, we were found when we weren't looking for a savior. Look at Rebecca. She was just going out for a drink of water. And she came home married. I walked into a church with my wife. I came home a believer one day. People have gone to lunch. People have encountered somebody on the street corners. People have gone into a hospital and laid in the hospital bed and a chaplain walked by. And they came out of those moments, believers, we weren't looking for anybody. Even when we think we were looking, we weren't looking the right way. And then the Spirit asked us to question, somehow, through somebody. And we agreed to it before we even knew what we were agreeing to. How much doctrine did you know the moment after you were saved? If you're me, none. And some might say it hasn't gone very far since then, but that's another point. And therefore, why did we respond to such a nonsensical proposal? Because the Father graciously worked to bring us into that relationship. 
And we've received gifts so that we can show others in the world and that we ourselves would have some confirmation in our own life that, yes, I have been changed by something. I can see the effect of God is working in my life. I know that I am wedded to this future groom. And so we anxiously await the day we will meet him face to face. Isn't this a beautiful picture? And it's only just begun. Next week, we'll come back to the story. We'll look at how the servant now has to encounter the bride's family in the world that she lives in and work to convince them and her that it's time to leave that world and start walking, walking with the Spirit back to the Son. We'll talk about that next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I hope that what we're seeing in Scripture today, Father, and as I've taught it, is an honest and correct reflection of your intentions in your Word. I have confidence that, that I'm on the right track, Father, because the picture seems so strong, so clear. And even if I have made errors in the details, Father, the truth of the main point is still evident. That you loved your children so much, even before they knew you, that you would set in motion all the details of our lives so that on an appointed day we would have an encounter with the Spirit. And we celebrate that, Father, in our memory of how it may have happened. We celebrate all that you did to bring it about. But we don't want to rest in it, Father. We have gifts. We want to put them to work. We have opportunities you will bring to us. We want to make the most of them. We don't want to sit still, Father, for the time is short. Let us be encouraged by the story that we learned today and we continue to study in weeks to come. Let us be encouraged. For if you have put this much time and thought and effort and planning into even the small details of our lives, when there is so much in this universe under your control and yet you are mindful of men, then, Father, there must be a plan ahead of us as well. There must be still more in your planning, more details. Don't let us miss those opportunities, Father. Put us to work. Help us to see every opportunity as a chance to glorify you. Let us earn the rewards you are willing to assign, but let us do it, Father, out of the love that you showed us. Equip us, Father, guide us, challenge us, encourage us. Do the things that will cause us to get moving in our walk with you. And let us always give you the glory. I thank you, Father, for friends and encouraging um, brothers and sisters in this church. I thank you, Father, for the leadership of, of many, for the silent, quiet leadership of many. I ask that the time we've been spending in the last year's Learning your word and growing in small ways here and there has been a preparatory period, Father, but I do pray that it would come to the foreground and, and be a time now that all of what we've been learning comes to, to some greater purpose, that we'd be put to work. Help this be a new season for that, Father. Thank you, as always, Lord, that we're able to study. Let us continue. Let that be a never-ending opportunity till your son's return. And uh, Give us a heart this week, Father, to speak what we learn to others. We pray these things, Father. Trusting in you as we have come to know. In Jesus' name, amen.